Welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Today's discussion is with Dr. Adam Ostema, who's an associate professor of emergency medicine at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. He's also an expert in stroke systems of care, epidemiology of stroke, and pre-hospital stroke systems. He really does a great overview today of the existing stroke management data, focusing mostly on thrombolytics for today's discussion. Now, I'll give you a look behind the podcasting curtain and let you know that when we edit these, I try to make them seem as if I'm there in real time talking with the guest. However, most of these are actually from recorded video lectures. Dr. Ostema does mention a number of times the slides that he's showing in real time. Most of the time I can edit around these or throw in a voiceover to explain. But in this particular podcast, a number of the visuals didn't really lend themselves to that approach. So you may want to look at the slides from this original lecture, which you can find on the ASAP Equal website. The first 18 minutes or so of this podcast are a whirlwind review of evidence where you won't hear from me much. And after that, Dr. Ostema jumps into specifically talking about ways to improve the ED stroke response. Dr. Ostema, take it away. Yeah, so my name is Adam Ostema, and I'm just going to be talking a little bit about stroke codes and with a particular emphasis really on thrombolytics as it pertains to treatment in the emergency department. So to start things off, I hopefully don't need to spend too much time convincing you that stroke is a serious problem. Stroke is relatively common and it is among the more common causes of death. And even when it doesn't cause uh, death, it causes substantial morbidity and can be very life limiting for individuals who may survive the stroke event. Uh, It's especially prominent in the Midwest and especially the Southern Midwest called the stroke belt, uh, but, but prevalent all over the country. The type of stroke we're really gonna be focusing on today is the ischemic stroke which of course is the majority of stroke cases that occur, probably about 85% of them. And in effect, this is a plumbing problem. Uh, An ischemic stroke represents a clogged pipe and like any clogged pipe, you really have two solutions. Either you can attempt to dissolve the clot or you can try to fish the clot out of there. And so we're really gonna be focusing on the former of those two treatment options because they're the one that's probably most in our hands in the emergency department setting. So I doubt I need to introduce the NINDS trials too much as I don't think there's any body of work out there that has been looked at more closely and carefully over the last 25 years or so than this trial. And so this NINDS trials were actually two separate trials conducted by the same investigators using essentially the, the same protocol and they were divided into parts one and two. Part one was focused on looking at early outcomes after TPA with the theory that TPA delivery would improve neurological status within 24 hours of giving it. And part two was focused on the longer term outcomes, three month functional outcomes with the idea that TPA would improve the likelihood of a recovery from stroke. And so this is a breakdown of the patients who were entered and these 625 patients have provided the bulk of the the data in the early treatment window that we uh, that we use even to this day. Now, as I imagine you may be aware, the part one of this study, uh, when only looking at the early outcomes, did not meet its test for statistical significance. There was not a, a significant increase in the proportion of individuals who had a four point increase or Im- improvement in their stroke scale within 24 hours. But the big news was that at three months, there was a pretty sizable shift uh, in uh, stroke outcomes for the TPA group, meaning that those treated with alteplase as compared to those treated with uh, placebo, 
were more likely to get back to normal or very near to normal. And they used four different measures of, of functional status, but the one that really sort of has stuck as the main outcome for strokes from this point onward was the modified Rankin scale, which is just a scale from zero to six, where six is death and zero is 100% uh, back to normal. Zero to one represents the ideal outcome because it means that no serious limitation in lifestyle uh, has resulted from the stroke. And there was about a 13% increase in the likelihood that a person would get to that state in the placebo group as, or in the TPA group as opposed to the placebo group. At the same time, the, the study demonstrated a clear increase in the risk of bleeding, which was not unexpected, but uh, the often quoted 6% bleeding rate with uh, alteplase came from this study. And it was about 10 times higher than the bleeding rate in the placebo group. But that said, when they looked at survival of these individuals over three months, and at all points along the way, there really was not a big difference in mortality outcomes, suggesting that even though there were some bleeding outcomes that were clearly negative, the overall likelihood of, of a death from stroke was really not changed. And so this trial led to the approval of, of alteplase for treatment of ischemic stroke. The FDA approved it the following year. In the early years, the treatment was not utilized very much. Uh, a small percentage of stroke patients received the treatment at all, particularly in community centers. And there were some reports that suggested that it could be delivered according to the protocols that were included in the NINDS trials. But there were also a couple reports where outcomes were less good than expected, especially with respect to bleeding rates. And in many cases, that, that related back to protocol violations. But it raised the question, is this something that can be reproduced outside of the trial? And that also led to some increased scrutiny of the, of the NINDS trials themselves. And a deeper dive into the data uh, unearthed one particular concerning problem, which is despite the fact that patients were randomized and despite the fact that the baseline stroke scores, the median scores were, same, were the same between the two groups, by chance, it was the case that the lowest severity stroke scores did tend to get into the TPA group more often. So those in the 0 to group, there was a preponderance of TPA-treated people. And it raised the question of whether or not maybe that was the reason that we saw a difference. And so all of that led the NINDS to commission a second analysis using the original raw data, independent of any of the original investigators. And that was done in the early 2000s. And effectively what they found is they took a number of steps to adjust for the balance problems and to account for any other possible confounders. And they concluded that the results of the NINDS trial were reliable despite these minor problems. But maybe one of the more interesting things that came out of that analysis was they did show the efficacy of TPA broken down by different stroke severities. And this is a principle that I think is still useful to think about today. Those in the lowest severity group demonstrated, in fact, no evidence that TPA was better. But starting at a stroke score of six and throughout the sort of medium, just medium severe strokes, uh, TPA had its greatest effect which makes sense given that it dissolves smaller clots rather than bigger ones more effectively. And then the very severe strokes, the effect was somewhat attenuated. So in addition to that analysis, there have been a number of meta-analyses that attempt to combine all of the trials of alteplase, of which there are nine, and try to see, well, what is the net effect across all trials everywhere? And so this is one of the more recent meta-analyses that exists on this topic. And if you look at the treatment effect for only those treated within three hours, 
the bulk of these patients did come from NINDS trials, but there were a few others. And altogether, there was a fairly clear signal that those treated with alteplase were more likely to recover than those who were not. And this is a net effect in in addition to the fact that there is an increased risk of bleeding, which is well acknowledged. Another line of evidence that suggests that TPA works about the way we would expect it to is a large number of observational studies that simply uh, quantified uh, bleeding rates and outcome rates for TPA-treated patients once TPA was approved. And so after publication of a large number of these types of studies, the outcomes that we saw for people in the real world treated with TPA look almost exactly like we would expect based on the treatment group in the NINDS trials. The likelihood of, of improving to normal or near normal was about what we would expect and was meaningfully different than when compared to the NINDS placebo group. So taking all this evidence together, ASAP has addressed this a few times. The most recent address actually happened in two stages. There was a 2013 recommendation where TPA was given a level A recommendation and led to some outcry due to some of these other concerns. And so a whole reanalysis of all the trials, a new rating system to ensure that the best methodology was used to come up with recommendations. And the ultimate conclusion was this, and this is the most recent guidance we have from ASAP, a level B recommendation re reflecting moderate certainty that with a goal to improve functional outcomes, IV TPA should be offered and may be given to selected patients with acute ischemic stroke within three hours. The net effect of this is the recommendation is that within the limitations of the evidence that exists, there is sufficient certainty to say that this should be a part of what we do in the emergency department. Now, what about the people who come a little after three hours? The early studies of TPA often included patients as far out as five and a half or six hours from the onset of their symptoms. It's one of the reasons why those early smaller phase two trials were mostly negative. And so it was pretty clear that earlier is better, but it wasn't clear exactly when when we should stop considering it. And so this trial, the ECAS-3 trial, was designed specifically to look at three to four hours. And that they originally targeted that number because of the later time points not looking very good on the early studies. After the trial began, a meta-analysis came out suggesting that the the likelihood of benefit hit zero sometime around uh, sometime around five hours or four and a half hours, and so they actually increased the length of time to four and a half hours, which is how we got this kind of goofy time interval. And that was for two reasons. Number one is it looked like it would still be okay, and number two was they had a lot of trouble recruiting because the therapeutic window for this trial was so small, uh, it took a long time to get to their their target population, which was about 800 patients. And so ultimately, the uh, published results are, are here. This is these graphs that kind of show the modified Rankin scale comparing alteplase to placebo. And you see, as with the NINDS trial, there's this kind of shift wherein the alteplase-treated patients on average appear to be more likely to be in these lower modified Rankin groups as compared to the placebo groups. The magnitude of effect, though, is a little bit smaller. There was about a 7% increase in the likelihood of getting to zero to one, as opposed to the 13% change that we saw in the early uh, first three hours. And this makes sense with what we think uh, TPA does. The longer you keep neurons ischemic, the less well they recover. And so the significance of this finding was sort of right at the edge of statistical significance. It had a p-value of 0.04. 
And interestingly, this trial also had a problem where, by random chance, lower stroke score people got into the trial in the TPA arm more often than they did in the placebo arm. And so right out of the gate, they adjusted their results for that baseline difference. But from that point onward, uh, this trial has, while it was positive, has always been somewhat somewhat more controversial, or at least the certainty around this finding has always been slightly less. And in fact, you may have read that there was a recent reanalysis that was published just within the last year or two, uh, where someone took the original data and they tried to handle the confounding variable of initial stroke score different ways to see if how you engineered your statistics would impact the findings. And so they presented a reanalysis. The bottom box that I have highlighted in red here is the original analysis by the by the ECAS-3 study group. And in that group, when a stroke score was missing, they essentially left those patients out of the analysis. And then they got this result where their p-value was 0.04. What these authors did is they took a couple of different approaches to how to handle that stroke score in their models. And uh, they would include them or exclude them. They would replace them or impute them with a a replacement score to sort of estimate what the overall effect would be. So I think what they were showing is that depending on how you handle that baseline variable, you could impact the p-value and the effect size a little bit, just enough to make it not statistically significant. I think the box that I've highlighted in red in the middle here illustrates that best. This is probably the most comparable and I think one of the more reasonable ways to look at this. They imputed the stroke scores, but they treated them as a categorical variable, which is, which is I think, a good statistical approach. And they found that the p-value was, instead of 0.04, it was 0.05. And I guess my summary of this is, I'm not sure that this really changes how I feel about this. We always knew that the statistical significance of the finding was on the edge of that 0.05 certainty level. Um, But the effect size, the the, the likelihood of improvement is about the same no matter how you adjust it. And I don't know that me being 95% certain that somebody benefits and me being 94% certain that somebody benefits necessarily changes my clinical approach to the information that we have. The benefit we're talking about is pretty meaningful for individuals who have strokes in this time frame, and your choices are either to treat or to not treat at all. And so emergency physicians, I don't think, are really in a different position because of this reanalysis than we ever were before. Furthermore, when we look at the same randomized or these uh, meta-analyses where we took all the randomized trials, uh, we actually had quite a few people treated between three and four and a half hours across all trials. And I've highlighted here that the effect size in that subgroup is pretty clearly on the on the side favoring ultiplase. Uh, the effect size, the odds ratio, was about 1.26. So the odds of getting back to normal are about uh, 26% higher if you get treated with ultiplase versus not. Uh, and so uh, ASAP's 2015 clinical policy addresses this time window as well. And since we only have three levels of grading evidence, this also landed in level B. Maybe it's like zero to three hours was a B plus and, and uh, beyond three hours was a B minus. But uh, within moderate certainty, it appears that TPA is effective in um, improving the outcomes of people who are treated within three to four and a half hours, but they subtly changed the language such that it says 
IVTPA may be offered and may be given as opposed to should be offered and should be given. And I think the idea here is ASAP wants the language in our recommendations to reflect the degree of certainty that we have that a person can benefit. And the farther we get out from the onset of symptoms, the less certain the benefit of TPA becomes. Another concern I think that these we're trying to address is this idea of a standard of care. Early on, uh, ASAP and other organizations were you know, reluctant to call that something would be called standard of care that wouldn't be achievable in, in various settings. And standard of care is, is more of a legal term that I am not super fond of weighing in on one way or another, something is standard of care. Uh, but if the concern is, you know, what is sort of an emergency physician going to be held accountable for or liable for in the world, there has been a little evidence published on this. And looking at 40 different cases that involve strokes and stroke issues, failure to treat with TPA or to offer TPA was substantially more likely to be one involved in a lawsuit as opposed to doing it. So I don't think this is how any of us should make a decision about what we do or don't do. But if there's a concern that delivering TPA is is a risk, I think that from a medical legal standpoint, it's probably uh, riskier to at least not have a good discussion about it. So I guess my bottom line summary of the state of the evidence is that the the weight of evidence supports the use of Alteplase for ischemic stroke for patients who are candidates. Professional organizations have recommended this from the American Heart Association, ASAP, and, and most other organizations that weigh in on our behalf. And I think maybe the the main lesson that the literature seems to show is that if you're going to give TPA at all, you probably want to get it in as early as you can. Both the, the efficacy and the safety of the medication drops off pretty rapidly. And certainly beyond four and a half hours, I would not, uh, I would not consider delivering it at all. Uh, but it exists on a gradient. You know, these time windows are not uniform. And so whether you're in the early phase or even if you're in that four to three to four and a half hour window, you always want to be as close as you can be to the early end of that. Oh boy. I have done a bunch of these podcasts on stroke, and I know that sometimes they may seem repetitive, but that was the best quick summary of the huge body of evidence that I have ever heard. Next, let's listen as Dr. Ostema moves from the overall evidence summary to digging into some practical tips about the ED stroke response. And so that kind of brings up the, the next portion of this talk that I'd like to, to discuss a bit is, you know, how do we make sure that when we give TPA, we do it as efficiently and as safely as we possibly can? And this was an interesting study that that just came out recently in the context of a kind of a QI project. A survey went out to a number of smaller emergency departments regarding their door to needle times, and physicians were asked, you know, what the proportion of time was that certain benchmarks were met. And there was a pretty big disconnect between the perception of door to needle times among providers and the actual measured door to needle time. So an individual physician, you know, isn't likely doing this all that often. And sometimes we have a, a perception that that we're operating more efficiently than we than we truly are. So how do we get ourselves to to be the safest, fastest machine that we can be when it comes to stroke cases? So I'm going to talk through a couple of different strategies, but first I, I thought I'd just kind of review the process. When I think about um, reducing door to, to needle times in the in the places where I've worked and uh, the process itself is sort of a, a long, wonky thing. If you kind of think of it, it, somebody has to catch the stroke. You know, we don't always diagnose things the moment it hits the door. And so somebody has to actually identify it as that. 
And then we need to get some history. We need to find out when the stroke occurred, how bad it is. We need some IVs, some blood. We need some imaging. Someone has to read it. We have to go through the kind of list of in indications and contraindications. We need some neurology input in most cases. We probably want the patient's input to some degree. And, and, and so when you add all these things up, it looks like this really long process that is almost hopelessly uh, complex. And so that, that can be a bit daunting. But if we really boil this down to what we really need to know, it's not that complicated. I mean, we need some historical information. Basically, we need to know enough information to believe it's a stroke. We need to have some sense of their last time, last known well and the severity of the stroke itself. We need one lab test. It's a glucose check. Uh, unless you have some reason to suspect a bleeding disorder, we don't need anything else to push TPA. We need a head CT done and resulted, and we have to be able to assess the contraindications. But all of this really doesn't take all that much time to acquire. Just to quickly review the contraindications, because it's often a little bit of a, it's a long enough list that it's hard to keep it in your head by yourself. And so a useful tool when you're doing these types of things is to have something written and ready to go when a patient shows up. But just to review, non-disabling symptoms is a contraindication. As I mentioned earlier, that really low stroke score group didn't seem to benefit from TPA. And subsequently, there was actually a randomized trial that specifically looked at that group and uh, really didn't find much signal at all. So a low stroke score by itself is not the same thing as non-disabling, uh, but a low stroke score and symptoms that are not limiting the patient's life, think arm tingling, is a situation where TPA really is not going to benefit that person. A low stroke score with a deficit that's very meaningful, think aphasia, TPA still may still be justified and in fact was given in, in other trials in those circumstances. Uh, really big strokes, bleeding, uh, recent head trauma, recent surgery, recent anticoagulation use, known bleeding diastheses from things like a neoplasm in the, in the brain. These are all sort of in the realm of the absolute contraindication. And then there's a, another list of bleeding risk type things that basically anytime you see a patient, you think, boy, I don't know, that sounds like it could be a risk, but it's not on this list. It's probably on the relative contraindication list, and it, it depends on the clinical scenario. Things that fall into that category or things that in general seem to predict bleeding are, are basically the bigger the stroke and the more other comorbidities a person has. Um, so really big infarcts on the initial imaging uh, we used to say greater than a third of the MC distribution. The current recommendations just kind of say very large infarcts. That's a bad sign. Hyperdense MCA sign was brought up as a potential bleeding marker. This one hasn't really washed out so much, so we don't need to worry about TPA in that scenario. The higher the stroke score, the higher the risk. The higher the age, the higher the risk. Blood sugars that are out of control, diabetes itself, all these things sort of raise the risk. Now, in most of these circumstances, this doesn't mean that you can't or shouldn't give the alteplase, but I do bring it into the discussion a little bit if I think a person is at higher risk. Age greater than 80 is a good example. We know that there is a higher risk of bad outcome over 80, but that's true whether we give TPA or not. And in fact, people over 80 on balance benefit at least as much as people who are younger. And so just the presence of an elevated risk doesn't always mean that we shouldn't be proceeding. What's the best way to maximize our efficiency? Well, I think that the models for acute stroke have really been tied closely to other time-dependent emergencies. And I think that that's a good analogy in most cases. Cardiac arrest, STEMI, trauma, stroke often get kind of lumped together. Uh, I think that of these three, the one that stroke is most like to my mind is trauma. 
in cardiac arrest and STEMI, we almost always already have the diagnosis. And it's really just a process problem of getting, getting the person through a particular treatment algorithm or getting them to a unit or a cath lab. Uh, trauma is a condition that, you know, the specific etiology of the person's injury isn't known at the time they hit the door. Uh, it kind of takes a multidisciplinary team to come and get through a structured exam to get a sense of what the problems might be. And then imaging is very central to severe trauma evaluations as well. So in a lot of ways, approaches to trauma codes to me are, are a lot like approaches to, to stroke codes where we need to kind of maximize the teamwork and the efficiency to get the information we need to get the patient the, tre the treatment they need. Uh, and so it, this day and age is kind of nice for, for us to live in because so many strategies have, have already been tried and vetted for us. And so there's a lot of a lot of options in the toolbox that we can reach for. Uh, Target Stroke was an initiative started around 2010 that was kind of tied to the Get With the Guidelines registry. And it was a set of recommendations and practices that were intended to maximize the efficiency of TPA delivery. And so these 12 elements were the focus. And, and I think they represent a nice toolbox to start from if you're, if you're reassessing your emergency department's efficiency in this particular area. So things like making sure you've got a, a rapid activation protocol, both for EMS and for triage, uh, getting a stroke team together quickly, creating a, a stroke packet or toolkit that contains all the information that you might need, such as lists of contraindications, pathways for standard work for nursing and for pharmacy and for providers and so forth. We're going to go through some of these things in more detail later, but this list is readily accessible online and is a great starting point of things that appear to help. So starting with activation, it's pretty well documented that when stroke patients show up in emergency department by EMS, they get their care faster, they get treatment faster than they do if they arrive by any other means. And that's true even after you adjust for things like how severe their stroke was or what their age was or even some of the timing uh, of calling an ambulance versus showing up in the ER. And that probably arises from the fact that EMS just gets the ER going a little bit faster. If EMS is good at recognizing stroke and EMS gives the emergency department that 10 minute warning and there are processes in place to turn that 10 minute warning into an empty CT, CT scanner and a stroke team ready to go, it really does shave time off of treatment. The next element I wanted to touch on briefly is the stroke team. Who is that? It's probably different depending on your institution, who's available there, what the resources are, but it might be any one of these people. Obviously, I think just about everybody, nurses, clinicians, and techs are gonna be a part of the initial response to a, to a stroke. But CT tech and or other imaging personnel are probably good to notify. And depending on specialists available, having a process to get them involved early is almost certainly going to help things down the road. And so there is some evidence behind a few of these things. Not all institutions have access to a PharmD, but there is some evidence that keeping a pharmacist as part of the stroke team may well speed things up. I work in two different hospitals. One of them, we have the support. One of them is a critical access hospital where it's not an option. And I can definitely say that when we have the PharmD available to be ready to mix medication, to give us blood pressure control medication, to help with talking to patients or families about contraindications or hunting down whether or not they're on an anticoagulant, uh, this is a really useful team member. And so where, where possible, it uh, is certainly a strategy that may help. 
Another more generic strategy is the, the method by which we activate our stroke codes. This was an interesting analysis, and there's a couple like it, sort of a before-after type look at stroke response times uh, before and after initiating a single call where one page goes out to every member of the team all at once. And it's kind of like when you're calling your kids to dinner, you know, you can hunt them each down individually, but they come to the table faster if you just ring the bell. Um, and then for those who are using telemedicine as neurology support, this was a nice uh, analysis that Dr. Zacherson was involved in that demonstrated there was a really clear correlation between treatment times and time to activation of that telemedicine process. Uh, it makes sense because we're obviously going to need the neurologist to weigh in. It takes a little time to talk to them. So the earlier we get them involved, uh, the faster things can move along. So what other things are useful when we're trying to to maximize our time? Well, lots of things have been looked at in, in more before, after, or observational type studies. So all of these things need to be taken a little bit with a grain of salt. But there, there are some correlations that I think are, are just good places for us to look for where we think our individual's bottlenecks are and then maybe select from the menu of things that we could try. I've already mentioned the rapid triage protocol and single activation. Interestingly, in-house neurology support is useful if you have it all the time, but if it's only there some of the time, it actually doesn't make that big a difference. Maybe it's because the, the department just gets more used to, to operating on its own. Obtaining rapid CT scans is obviously a big step in the process, but the nature of the protocol is a little bit unclear. Uh, it may be that direct to CT transportation or, or triage of patients is one way to fix this, or it may be just having a protocol to empty the table. But depending on the institution, there seems to be quite a bit of variability in how useful this is. So I think it's another one where you kind of have to look at, is this our problem? And then select something to address that. Certainly, Ultiplase protocols and having a standard workaround, getting the drug, getting it delivered, what's the what's the protocol to make sure the dose is right? What's the protocol to make sure the blood pressure is right? These things help. Um, another thing that I'm a fan of is mixing that TPA as soon as you think you're going to need it. There are buyback programs that have existed on and off so that this doesn't get uh, wasted, uh, you know, given that it is an expensive drug. But it takes about 10 to 15 minutes between pulling the vial off the shelf and having the bolus ready to deliver. And particularly in places where a pharmacist is not there doing it, it's often the nurse who's also trying to manage everything else on the patient who's trying to mix and calculate the doses. And that time adds up. And so it it's happened to me several times in my career where I thought we were ready to go. We say, okay, give the bolus, and they're like, oh, it's not ready. So I'm a big fan of pre-mixing, and I, the, the rule we use at our institution is if you're 50% likely, that, if you think you're 50% likely to give it, and oftentimes you know, then you should mix it. And if it turns out you're wrong, then we'll figure out what to do with the TPA afterward. Pre-mixing TPA is an interesting thing that I don't know that we have talked about on any of these podcasts before, and so I'm glad it came up here. Next, Dr. Ostema talks about some processes specific to either the providers and staff or the patient interaction that might improve the timeliness of stroke care. Uh, another thing that seems to make a big difference is feedback, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. So I mentioned a stroke packet. In that stroke packet, one useful thing, especially if you don't talk to people about TPA every day, which is almost all of us, a useful little adjunct is something to communicate the risk of and the benefit of treatment to patients. The statistics are kind of complicated. I think patients' eyes gla glaze over when you start just rattling off a series of percentages, uh, and, I, and I worry that we're really not communicating the information that we want to. 
And so this is one example that's been published. We've developed our own institutional version of this, where the green people, if we took 100 people and treated them with TPA, the dark green people are the people, the additional people who would have gotten back to normal. The light green people are people who are better off than they would have been, and the red people, and the, the minus signs are bleeding at the bottom, and the red people are those who got worse. And so with a relatively brief discussion, you can just lay out to patients and families what you think the likely outcome is for, for a person treated with alteplase. Incidentally, this is for zero to three hours. We've developed a second one that we use for three to four and a half since the risks are a little bit different. Another useful strategy that has been uh, shown is uh, where the TPA is actually pushed. So in many institutions, patients get their CAT scan, we get them off the table, we wheel them back to their room, we wait for the call back, and when the radiologist tells us it's a go, then we push the TPA at that point. Uh, the right two panels of this slide are where I'd like to draw your attention. The, the center panel is uh, TPA delivered in the ED bay or the, the ED patient's room. And then uh, the right panel represents TPA de delivered in the CT scanner itself. Now, this isn't always feasible to do, but many times if the TPA is pre-mixed and the case is pretty clear cut and there can be some discussion with the family while the CT is ongoing, uh, especially in the age where we're now getting a lot of angiograms and things like that in the imaging suite, getting a read on that initial head CT and pushing the TPA bolus immediately if there are no other uh, complications or, or reasons not to can really shave off a lot of time. The other interesting thing about this slide is these little very dark uh, triangles that are located in these two panels represent times patients were taken directly to the CT scanner as opposed to first to an ED room and then to a CT scanner. As I said, that isn't consistently observed to be better, but it is maybe a strategy that can be effective depending on your institution. And so I guess my general theme for how these strategies should help is more or less by stacking uh, the various steps of this process so that as many of them can happen in uh, parallel as, as possible. And that is the more sort of team members that can be involved in given specific elements, for example, maybe nursing grabs the stroke score, and the tech grabs the blood and the you know physician is gathering the last known well history or talking to family by stacking up as many of these things as we can that is usually how we can crunch the time down and and get to the bolus without missing steps or or introducing some new risk so which of these things is the best well I don't think there's any simple answer to that. And I came across a really interesting meta-analysis that tried to answer it with dozens of observational or before-after trials that have been done for different interventions. And the number one most effective strategy on in that analysis was a combination strategy. So no surprise here, each one of these little changes that is made probably contributes just a, just a few minutes uh, to the patient's time. But when we add them together, they really do stack up and can reduce uh, meaningful numbers of minutes off of treatment times. As a single strategy, the, the one that was most useful was feedback. Uh, it turns out that when we get feedback that our stroke code wasn't fast, I think you know it's natural for us to think through what we could have done better and handle the next one more effectively. So good feedback useful feedback that in, includes not only some information about times and outcomes, but also perhaps highlights where things bog down, breaking down the, the time intervals door to doc time, doc to CT order time, CT to CT complete time, CT read time, TPA mix time, TPA delivery time. Getting all those really granular details can help you get into 
what is my barrier? What is my bottleneck? And then another one is EMS pre-notification. So uh, hopefully by working with local EMS, uh, getting good training to providers, making sure there's a clear process by which EMS can activate stroke, and maybe even some feedback for EMS on on how they can do better are, are useful strategies and options as well. And another thing I thought I'd highlight from this because I thought it was interesting is non-target interventions, meaning this is stuff off the list. Uh, the toolbox I discussed here is, is a list of suggestions, but uh, homegrown suggestions tailored to meet local problems are probably really effective. There's good reason to believe, though, that taking on these bundles of interventions will result in better treatment times. This left panel uh, represents data from Get With The Guidelines and kind of highlights when this target stroke initiative began and shows the proportion of patients who got their treatment within 60 minutes. And there's a pretty marked inflection point at the beginning of this that continued on for some years after, after hospitals began. The right panel is the same question, but this time uh, is looking at Medicare data. And so Again, we see the same the same relationship. And so there are many individual institutions that have published their success stories with this or that intervention. And so I think the, the general message is this is doable and is sustainable with, with attention over time. And beyond that, there's uh, some reason to believe that these improvements don't just change numbers, but probably change outcomes. And so this is observational data from the Get With The Guidelines data, database again. And so it's difficult to make a causal assumption here. Uh, but I think it is somewhat compelling that with each phase of the target stroke process, there was not only improvement in the benchmarks that I talked about, but the mortality for stroke patients who were treated declined. The likelihood of going home increased. The likelihood of bleeding went down. And so it may well be that um, that as we would expect, these uh, these interventions have, have some meaningful impact on patients' lives. Uh, and so I would just conclude by saying um, uh, systemic alteplase uh, is beneficial for selected patients with acute stroke, but the efficiency and the harm are, are time dependent. And so if we're going to give this drug, we have to be able to do it in a way that's safe and effective. And so standardizing processes, there's not all areas of medicine that I think are really uh, ripe for lean type thinking. And, and I don't know if that's a solution to all problems that we face, but I think this is a good example where it really does make sense. And so lots of different strategies have been employed, but I think focusing on alert processes, identifying bottlenecks, creating bundles of interventions that involve whole teams, and then providing meaningful feedback are good strategies that are likely to improve both your treatment times and your patient's outcomes. There is so much more to talk about regarding stroke care, but that is where we are going to have to leave it for today. Thank you, Dr. Ostema, for this incredible lecture, and thank you listeners for giving us your time today. If you are interested in more content on stroke from ASAP Equal, you can find the rest of our podcast series on the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com, or on the ASAP website. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com.